Hi, everybody. This is Billy West, and I do a lot of cartoon voices. And you're listening to Gilbert Gottfried's Colossal Amazing Podcast. Your one stop for that sort of thing. <laughs> Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and we're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is an author, director, producer, activist, environmentalist, and one of the most visible and versatile actors of his generation. You've seen him in dozens of popular movies, including The In-Laws, Cat People, Eating Raul, This is Spinal Tap, Transylvania 6-5000, The Accidental Tourist, She-Devil, Best in Show, A Mighty Wind, Pineapple Express, and the recent Ghostbusters, just to name a few. You also know his work from popular television shows such as Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, Columbo, MASH, The Larry Sanders Show, The Simpsons, Six Feet Under, The West Wing, Arrested Development, Better Call Saul and Curb Your Enthusiasm for six memorable seasons he played Dr. Victor Ehrlich on the acclaimed medical series Saint Elsewhere garnering six Emmy nominations and a Golden Globe nomination in the process. In his lengthy and successful career, he shared the big and small screen with Alan Arkin, Peter Folk, Richard Pryor, Meryl Streep, Kirk Douglas, Jack Nicholson, and Jane Fonda, as well as former podcast guest Eliana Douglas, Michael McKean, Henry Winkler, Ron Liebman, and even me, Gilbert Gottfried. It's our pleasure to welcome to the show a man who's done just about everything a person can do in show business. My old co-star from that cinematic classic, Back by Midnight. And a man who was once pulled out of a bar by n- a notorious party animal, John Bellucci, the talented and you 
ubiquitous. 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 <laughs> I knew that would fuck me over. Ed Bagley Jr. Wow. Do I sound important from that? That's really, I'm even impressed myself. You were very kind to cut out all the, the fat, to cut out all the stuff that wasn't quite as exemplary, but it sounds like I've had a hell of a career for what you just said. I'm impressed. Quite a resume. Well, but Quite a resume. A- adding fat to it, of course, we we were both in, I think, Rodney Dangerfield's last film. That's correct. Back <laughs> by Midnight. Randy Quaid, was Randy in it? Uh, Randy Quaid was in it, yes. Yes, yes. What Have you seen him lately? I haven't seen him in a while. <laughs> the last I heard of Randy Quaid, he was hiding out in Canada. And With Evie, his wife Evie, right. yes. And he said that there was this group of celebrity whackers after him. And I'd like to get in touch with those celebrity whackers because they sound got like a, list. a good time. I've got a list too. And and so he was hiding out in Canada and he held a press conference to announce that he's hiding out in Canada. Which <laughs> I kind this of now. counteracts. My yeah, it kind of defeats point. the purpose. Yes. What the hell was back by midnight? It keeps coming up on this show, Ed. And I don't I looked it up today. It's it you played it was getting out of prison like uh like uh, on a hall pass kind of thing or something, or sneaking out of prison. I can't remember the details. I don't remember my part even. I remember the day I shot in a boardroom somewhere. You played a character named Robert Wade, and Gilbert played a security guard. Right. Do you remember the plot other than getting out of jail somehow? No, I've I've never seen it. (laughs) Me either. I I didn't read the script. (laughs) You know what? I don't think I did either. I think I just read my part. I don't do that often, but I think I did it for this one. And I read my part and went, okay, when is it, Thursday? Fine. <laughs> and someone told me, because it was, you know, Rodney toward the end, and he didn't have the energy he used to. They said, for the most part, he was like a bit part in the movie he's allegedly starring in. Right. Like the other people were taking up the slack. And he just right. pop in and out at times. He called me after that, and he asked. He wanted a favor. Hey, I got to talk to you. I got to talk to you. <laughs> oh my God, you're dead. Odds against tomorrow. What a movie. Odds against tomorrow. Oh, Robert yeah. Ryan. Oh, Harry Belafonte. I got to play that part. Your dad played. He was great in the part, but I want to play it. We're going to do a remake. So I said, that's a great idea. I encourage you to do it, Rodney. You need to get a hold of Harry Belafonte. See who has. I said, well, I know who has the rights. It's Harry Belafonte, or it was a Harbell production. So contact Harry. You've got to get a hold of him for me. So I call up Harry Belafonte <laughs> to see if he would release the rights to Rodney. You can imagine his response. I can imagine. <laughs> He's a very nice man, though, Harry Belafonte. He was very nice to me, as he was on the set. I visited on the set. Very nice man. He was very kind and nice, but it was a no. I try to wrap my mind around Rodney remaking Odds Against Tomorrow. So, right, which is a great noir yes, movie, you, by the way. Yes, it Robert is. Wise, oh, dad's brilliant. great, Ned. Robert Wise. And and so you visited him on the set of the original. Well, it was only the original. Yeah, I visited him uh, there in Hudson, New York, where they filmed it. Had a great time at Robert Ryan, Harry Belafonte, and my dad. To be on the set with him was always a treat. Whenever he brought me, I was very excited to be there. 
And this was uh, great. Stayed in some wonderful little hotel that had a bunch of art on the walls about um, Rip Van Winkle. You know, it was one of those kind of Hudson places, Hudson River places. It was very exciting for a kid. Then we went to the premiere there, too. A car picked us up in Merrick, Long Island, and drove us all the way to Hudson, New York. A long trip, you can imagine. And we uh, went to the premiere. And uh, very exciting for a young boy. I think it was 10 or 11. Jesus. And... And now, Robert Ryan, he would always play, like, mean characters. Yes. And and quite often, uh, you know, bigoted, racist, and anti-Semitic oh, yeah. characters. Yes. But he wasn't like that. I he was not. To my knowledge, he was a very nice guy. And my dad loved to torture him. He called him up one time that I remember. I was in the room. He called him up and did some crazy voice. Hello, <laughs> is this Mr. Robert Ryan? <laughs> Yes, this is he. You know, my dad had his number, obviously. I'm here. This is the mayor of Hudson, New York, Phil Cutworth. And uh, I remember meeting you there in Hudson when we did Odds Against Tomorrow. And I, I'm in the neighborhood. I'd like to come by and see you and say hello. Well, I, I don't know that now's a good... Well, I'm right nearby. I'm actually next door. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come by and say hi. <laughs> and poor Bob Ryan is dying and trying to, you know, convince the supposed mayor of Hudson, New York, not to come by. <laughs> my dad starts laughing his ass off and then Bob... Brian, you son of a bitch, you cocksucker, you fucking asshole. <laughs> he did another good one with your dad on Dangerous Ground. Oh, that's right. I forgot about On yeah. Dangerous Ground. Yeah, another that's good a good one. movie, too. They yeah, teamed yeah. Up. Your dad's in so many of those good noirs. He's in Dark City, Sorry, Wrong Number. Oh, yeah, Sorry, Bunch Wrong Number, another good one. Good in all Sitting of them. Sitting Pretty, Boomerang, Boomerang. Boomerang, right, movie. Kazan. Yeah. And, yeah. and what I Four always... Angry Men. yeah. What I always remember We're talking about that. is your father standing up going, well, you can't believe them. You know the way those people are. They're all liars. <laughs> you know what those people are like? Come on. You know the boy did it. Why is everybody looking at me like that? What are you looking at? And he, it was finally came down. The last two bigots standing were him and Lee Cobb, I think. And oh, yeah. To the bitter end. Yeah. It's great because E.G. Marshall shuts him down. He says, we've heard what you had to say. Now sit down and don't open That's your right. mouth again. Oh, and that's great. right. That's he a great moment. He shows so much range because he goes from being rageful to just being defeated yeah. and meek. And it's 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 a and, wonderful piece. And, and it's, it is. And it's what's so amazing about it is he's, he's acting like racist, like he's like a villainous character at that point. And then when he's defeated, you feel bad for him. Exactly. Yeah. It's a wonderful turn, wonderful job by Sidney Lumet. Great script, great everything about it. A remarkable movie, really. We love that one. You know, I got Me a kick, too. Ed, to, uh, doing the research on you, and you're talking about it. your dad. Your dad, won, of course, won the Oscar for Sweet Bird of Youth. By the way, the, 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 him winning, the footage of him winning, of Rita Moreno giving him the award is still on YouTube. I, I finally found it. I great. hadn't seen it my whole life because I was in military school, and they wouldn't let me stay up to see it. So I had never seen it until like five years ago. Three years ago, I can't remember. Somebody said, you know, there's a clip on YouTube. Yeah. They sent me a link, and I saw it. I, I just loved it. It was so great. He thanked his agent. He does. He thanks Richard Brooks and his agent. But he really That's goes right. out of his way to thank his agent. But I was telling Gilbert, he used to, where, where did he carry his Oscar? Because this is fun. He carried it around with him in the car. He had it in the trunk for a while, then he had it under the driver's seat in this little velvet. It comes with, like, they give you a little velvet sleeve for it, a little tie at the bottom. Wonderful. And he carried around, and he was very generous 
with tourists and people. You're at Beggar. I seen you. I saw you in 12 Angry Men. I saw you in Sweet Bird of Youth. Oh my God, can we get a picture? Yeah. You want a picture with an Oscar? Oh my God, are you serious? Ed Begley's going to take a picture with us in the Oscar. He'd pull the Oscar out of the car and he'd hold it with him and they'd touch the Oscar and he'd hold it with him. And I went, this bastard, when am I going to hold the Oscar? I'm his own son. I never, <laughs> you know, I I kind of grabbed it just to feel it myself, but he never mentioned, Ed, you want to hold the Oscar? And he's giving these people, he doesn't even know their names from Oshkosh. He's letting them hold the Oscar. <laughs> and we're flying back to New York from LAX. And he goes, uh, okay, I got to go get some seats for us. I'll get you on an aisle seat, right? Okay. Hold, here, hold this. And he gives me the Oscar. I was so petrified that he finally handed it to me. Oh, oh, Christ. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. I dropped the Oscar and broke it. Oh, I broke geez. daddy's Oscar. Is there any symbolism there? Wow. Wow. What happens in a case like that? Does the Academy repair it for him? What happens that immediately is my dad comes out, okay, I got you an aisle seat. Like, what the hell have you done, boy? What have you done? You broke Oscar. <laughs> Jesus Christ. What the fuck is the matter with you? I thought he was literally going to kill me. There's more than one time in my life I thought he's actually, he was taking me for a drive once. He was just upset about something. He was furious with me about something. Then as it turns out, he had gotten over that. He said, come on, let's go for a drive. And I thought he was actually going to kill me. He drove me out to this remote <laughs> oh my thing. God. I thought, should I look in the back? Is there a bag of lye and a shovel? What's going to happen there? And he would just, no, what's the matter? You look funny, okay? I love you, boy. What? Okay. I think one of my favorite stories the is voice. you're talking about how you used to love to go to the set. And this is fun. Gilbert will get such a kick out of this that you he would take you to visit his famous friends. And you were so young that sometimes you didn't you didn't quite appreciate it or you weren't you didn't even know who they were. Oh yes. No. I had no idea who they were. We would go whenever we drove up to San Francisco, we'd stop in Montecito there, Santa Barbara area. We'd stay at a hotel, the Miramar, I think was a hotel. It might still be there. Very nice hotel. We'd stay there and then we'd continue on and the next day we'd get to San Francisco. But um he'd also visit this elderly couple that I just I was always bored to tears that he'd stop and see this couple. They would talk about things I didn't understand. And, you know, then we'd get in the car and we'd go. And it was like, please wake me up when you're done. And then I realized years later, it was Paul Muni, Paul and Bella. Unbelievable. Jeez. Two people named Paul and Bella. And I said, who were those people we'd stop? That's, that was Paul Muni, Eddie. <laughs> yeah, real. One of the legendary great actors. One of the best actors fugitive, ever. Scar, Scarface, Fugitive from a Chain yeah, Gang. Fugitive from a Chain Gang. They both won Tonys for Inherit the Wind on Broadway, Paul and my dad both. Then Paul left the play, and my dad went uh, over the weekend, wound up doing uh, for the next, after the Sunday matinee, then he wound up doing the uh, Tuesday. He did Paul's party, switched parts, did the other part, which was kind of a hat trick. I couldn't believe he did that. Didn't he also take you to a comedy club that's no longer in Hollywood? Couple it was of times. called the uh, Hollywood Comedy Club. It was on Highland. The building is still there, I believe. It's American Legion Hall there on Hollywood Bo- on uh-huh. Highland, right near uh, the Hollywood Bowl. And you'd go in there, and there'd be sometimes Milty would be there, and this one and that. Some people, you know, that I knew, and some people that I just can't believe I got to meet. Some of the Keystone Cops were still alive. One or more of them oh, were still alive. Unbelievable. Wow. Wheeler and Woolsey, one of them was still alive. Bert, Bert Wheeler. Wheeler. Yeah. Bert Wheeler, I think, was still oh, alive. Wheeler then. He would and be there. Woolsey. Yeah, incredible. Incredible comics from vaudeville days. Great comics. Silent film, classic comics, the Keystone Cops, and I got to meet them. So I'm, I'm a, l- a very lucky young man. Now, were Wheeler and Woolsey the ones where one of them 
drew the glasses on his face? I believe so. Yeah. That yeah. sounds right. Yeah, Wolsey died in the correct. 40s. Very good. That's, yeah. wow. Yeah. That's very good. I this is the kind correct. of stuff we talk about on this show, Ed. Good. It's good stuff. <laughs> these are, our, these are our obsessions. And you said you were in military school and you actually liked it. I loved it. I don't know if the intention was to punish me. It was definitely to park me somewhere because he got married. He was married to this woman. He met briefly and he needed to park his two kids somewhere. So my daughter, my sister went, his daughter, my sister went to one uh, a school out in Long Island and I went to school up in Niagara Falls and it was a Catholic military boarding school, the triple crown of repression. So I thought this is going to be terrible. <laughs> triple crown of repression. But it was fantastic. It was the nuns, these nuns different than the nuns kindergarten through seventh grade out in Long Island. They were like, batting kids around every day, just bloody, literally blood, bloody lip, bloody knuckles, bloody nose regularly. And uh, I went there and these, these nuns, uh, Francisca nuns didn't hit anybody. And uh, they had a science class unheard of at the other school. They didn't want to teach science because it didn't really fit with the Catholic doctrine. Science didn't fit in too well. But this other thing, this great school called Stella Nagra, they had a science class and the nuns were very nice. And I, you're a kid, you're, I was 12 years old marching around in a uniform with a wooden gun, I was in heaven. Wow. I loved it. If it was punishment, it didn't work. I, I really liked it. And we also acted, uh -oh. if you could call it acting, in a serial commercial together. Yes, we did. Quaker Natural? Something, something. Oh, no, there was a... Something yeah, was, not... Yeah, yeah. I think it was a Quaker Natural commercial, I think. I think that's correct. Did this get on the air, this commercial? Uh, yeah. I, I must I, find it. Yeah. And I I'm pretty sure it did. And I remember, to show your professionalism, you didn't eat lunch on the set, so you'd be able to actually eat the cereal. Wow, and what a memory you have. I think that's correct. That's ringing a distant bell. Yes. And now I ate lunch, of course, because it was free. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm as far from professional as you could be. And and what I went in for instead was they have the spit bucket. Because if you've got to eat food, you're usually eating the food like a thousand times a day <laughs> right. under hot lights. So I'd eat it, smile, and they yelled, cut, and I'd spit into the bucket. That's what most people, most sane people, I can't believe I kept eating of it. But <laughs> Ed, I've you're such a pro. Where, well, I've been there with models that, you know, don't want to have too much food anyway, and they would have a three-finger salad after, you know, having too much of this stuff, and they'd be Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm fine. Let's do another time. <laughs> so you guys work together twice. Twice. Back, back by midnight and a... And a and a cereal. An unknown we were, cereal. I think we did a, one or more of those George Slaughter American Comedy Awards. You were at uh, that more than once, I think. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, I was at a few of those. Yeah, one of those was in. Do you remember the what time? Was? Were you there? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go me. ahead, Ed. Do you remember the time when Professor Irwin Corey got up at the American Comedy Awards, George Slaughter's thing, and he got up and he did that unbelievable bit that I want to get a clip of and just look just to study for the genius of it, he came up on stage and, ladies and gentlemen, welcome, please, Professor Irwin Corey. And it comes out, 
nods to the audience, and he has like these five by seven index cards, and he stands there. <clears throat> he shuffles the cards around. <laughs> he moves, he shuffles them again. <clears throat> he does this for three of the most brilliant minutes. And it's a podcast, so I can't do any justice to what he did physically. <laughs> but he then goes on for three minutes, at which point, after a minute or less, you're pounding the table. Whatever he's doing, you're laughing so hard. He's saying nothing. He's clearing his throat at the three-minute mark. Three minutes of that, of saying nothing other than clearing his throat and other sounds. He then goes, furthermore. <laughs> <laughs> he was brilliant. Just brilliant. Just yeah. brilliant. You, George might have a, a, a copy of that if you check with him. We had George here. I will check with him. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I would love to see that. Yeah. Somebody I'm sure send he does. me a link about that. He saves wow. everything. I'm and, sure he has And it. you worked on one of the great comedy films, uh, The In-Laws. Oh, thank you. I agree. That was a classic. Wonderful. Thank you. And and tell tell us about uh, Alan Arkin and Peter Falk. To work Let me with. say, first of all, uh, Paul Reiser's a friend, and he had an occasion to do the Malibu Film Society thing where normally you come and you do a movie that you're in. And he certainly could have done the movie he was in with Peter Falk. He did a movie with him that was that was good, and he was very good in it. Peter was, as always, great. He chose to show instead a movie he was not in, Paul Reiser did, called The In-Laws. And I hadn't seen it since maybe I saw it a second time in the 80s. It came out in 79. Mm-hmm. We did it in 78. came out in 79. And I loved it then, of course, in 79. I saw it again maybe in the 80s, loved it still. And this was a year ago or so, and it held up so well, I couldn't believe it. And as to these two guys, to Peter and Alan, I still talk to Alan from time to time. I talked to Peter throughout his life. He was born on September 16th, as I am, as I was, and uh, a few years apart, of course. But we would have our birthday together regularly with Shara with his wife, Sharon, and, and my wife and uh, Ingrid, and then later m- my second wife, Rochelle, we would get together and have times with him. Just, I just feel blessed to have known him and to still know Alan Arkin, two of the nicest, funniest guys. And you look at that movie, The In-Laws, and just take one scene, that scene we're in that diner, that New York diner. Wonderful. It's one of the best scenes. Why? They play it like it's, like it's Strindberg. They do not play it like it's a comedy. They play it like the two wonderful actors that they are, and it's hysterically brilliant because it's real. You know, it's just there's a reality to that movie with all the absurdity that's going on. They keep it 100%, you know, Udahagen real or whatever way you want to look at it. Just it, it's shocking how well it held up. You committed a federal crime. Of course it's federal. The Treasury Department is on the case. So what happens if you get caught? We won't get caught. Not if Stop the week! If you get caught, is the agency going to come forward and say it's okay, he works for us? No. 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 I'm out in the cold on this one, Shell. If I get caught, they shred my records, they say they never heard of me, and it's 20 years in the slammer. What about me? I was the one running through the streets with that goddamn thing. I was the one in the gutter. And you were tremendous, Shell. The way you handled yourself, I can't tell you how impressed I was. No, I mean this. It's been something I've been wanting to say. You were sensational, Shell. And it's an act of friendship that I will remember for as long as I live, which could be about an hour. So what do I got, an hour and a half? I've heard you say that, that you that's that that's the way to play comedy, like it's Chekhov, like it's Strindberg. 
I think so. And you look at the people that you really, and again, there's stuff that happens that's absurd. Harold Lloyd is hanging from the hands of a clock, but he, he makes it real and Buster Keaton made it real oh, yeah. and these great actors, they make it real and there's a time to spike out from that carpet of reality you lay down, like even in the in-laws, serpentine, Shelley, serpentine. You know, and they're running in zigzag, zigzag mm-hmm. angles and that's wonderful, but that level of reality, you take the great comic actors also like Dabney Coleman always plays it totally 100% real and it's brilliantly funny. Buffalo Bill was brilliant because oh, yeah. never played it for laughs and they didn't write it for laughs. They wrote it for reality and it's one of the great, in my opinion, comic half hours in history, Buffalo Bill. He's and, a genius. And I think George I Burns said yes. on Burns and Allen, he liked hiring actors because the actors believe it. Yes, that's interesting. And that's always compelling to watch, and it's 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 uh, really a, a great rule to abide to, by. A funny thing happened though when we saw the in-laws with because it's a re-release now on DVD. I only had it on VHS when I saw it again in the eighties. Uh, I had a a tape copy, and it looked, you know. Rather poor quality, of course, but it looked like it did or the original film version. But then I saw the DVD uh, re-release, and the movie was very good, but my hair was blonde in the movie, which it shouldn't have been. My hair was actually red in the movie, but somebody turned a dial somewhere when they did the re- They went, this is not Ed Begley's hair color. They turned <laughs> oh, interesting. It you gave us a little glimpse of, of, of your Falk impression, Ed, so we have to put you on the spot because it's just yes. that good. Could you? Could you? Could I ask you something? That guy, the guy that was in the movie with me that played Barry Lutz, what the fuck is his name? <laughs> the big no, the big albino guy. What the fuck is his name? Ed Begley. That's right. Ed Begley Jr. What a pain in the ass he was. What a five-star pain in the fucking ass. <laughs> Perfect. Thank now, you. Now, Peter Falk, and it's sadly the time period we're living in. Uh, like the public got to witness him after he was suffering Alzheimer's. Like it made it all over the internet. I didn't see any of that. I didn't know till this moment that that footage was out there, and that's yeah. unfortunate. But um, how? What? Where was he in this footage? He, where did they capture him? He was out in the street. You know, I think in L.A. And oh, he, yes, he was looking for his car. I've heard about this now yeah. that you mention it. Yeah, and he it, looked really, like, out of shape, and his clothes were rumpled up, and he's yelling at people to get away from him. And it was, you know, it's a horrible thing because that's the time period we live in. I know. It's a shame that that's out there, but it is. That, but fortunately, it's so greatly outweighed by the incredible things oh, like of Christ of Tomatoes oh, and of In-Laws course. and uh, all oh, those Columbus. Oh, the great the great race, the Blake Edwards yeah. picture. Oh, that he's just oh, Everything wonderful. that he did, this Murder guy, Incorporated. Robin and the Seven Hoods. Yeah. You know, even that little pit in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. He yes, manages, exactly. he makes it his own. He makes it just his own. Just a few minutes of screen time and he jumps off the screen. And Dabney and I were very good friends with Peter and we went to visit him after we had heard of his condition. But he went in and he didn't seem to know us at all. And after Shara was there for a while, his wife Shara, after a few minutes, it seemed to me that he didn't know it was her. And he we were watching, we were just talking to him and, you know, just trying to engage with him and what have you. And, and we kind of, you know, gave up after a while. We talked amongst ourselves 
And then we talked to, to Shara and talked to his caregiver. He was very nice. And then he looked over and went, oh, yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. He would point to Dabney and me, and he knew us. And it was such a gift. That's felt great. so good that we had come. That's great. Okay, just when the show was starting to get good, we're going to throw a monkey wrench into the works with this commercial word. I, can't, I don't know his fucking name. What is Gilbert? You, you want Godfried? <laughs> right, yeah. Gilbert Godfried? Is that it, Godfried? Yes. That's it. Okay, am I, now I'm supposed to do this now? If you yes. wouldn't mind. Yeah, okay. Hello. My name is M. Emmett Walsh. One T in the Emmett. And I want to thank you for watching and listening to Gilbert Godfrey's whatever it is he does and they pay him money for it. <laughs> What's your game now? Can anybody play? He now back to the show. Was that set crazy, Ed, with, with Dick Libertini doing the Sinuensis thing and Arkin and yeah. Falk? I mean, was it... Was it <laughs> Another great actor, Richard Libertini. Ah, love Come him. We, we're so sorry talented. we didn't get him on this show, yeah. I know. Everything that he did, you know, uh, the one with uh, Peter Falk and with Lily, that wonderful... Um, what was the one where? Oh, uh, all of they, me. They trade spirits or yeah. something. Yeah, the the Carl Reiner I movie. All of me. Yeah, very fun. Very good. All of me. Very yeah. very good. He was so wonderful in that. Everything that Dick did was wonderful, and he brought so much to this character. This and he played it big but real again. You know, it was very large what Dick did in that movie, but I found it to be totally believable because he came from that place of he was an actor, he was a comic actor, but. He, he just always impressed me. We were very good friends, Dick and I, and I'm just proud to know him. Was Arkin improvising a lot? I've heard you say it was it was a little bit like jazz, like yeah, what, what he a, would do. There was a wonderful script there, this brilliant script by Andrew Bergman, of course. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, they d- did the original takes with that, but I seem to remember there was some times when they would, certainly in front of the firing squad, there was some scripted stuff that was great, but Alan and Peter added some stuff when they were there in front of the firing squads, and Alan is, you know, weeping and kind of <laughs> <laughs> with the blindfold on. It's just so goddamn funny. He's talking and about uh, how, how few women he's had in his life. Exactly. <laughs> he's, regre- he's regretting that he didn't have, that he didn't get laid more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And, oh, and I heard funny. that it was Arkin who came up with the idea just that he was watching Peter Falk on a talk show and he called up his agent or manager and said, I want to work with Peter Falk on a movie. And he goes, well, what kind of movie would you like it to be? And I go, well, it's me and Peter Falk. And folk annoys me. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what they had to write a script on. It was a great idea. Alan's a very smart man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what, two two great guys to work with and so early in your career. I'm so lucky. I'm so blessed to have worked with them and to still be in touch with Alan. He just sent me an email the other day and we talk on the phone occasionally. I'm very good friends with his brilliant son, Adam Arkin. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Adam is a great, great actor. Fan of his, and too. now a great director, too. 
and tell Arkin to do this podcast right away. Oh, we're dying to I get will. him. Yeah, we're dying he's to the get best him. Of the best. Your pal William Daniels has also been elusive. Two people we want to get on this show. Well, I'll help. I'll talk to both of them. I, I just saw Bill the other day. I saw him not 48 hours ago. Bill and Bonnie are great friends. We love, I mean, Gilbert and I, we talk about the graduate, the parallax view, even Captain Nice. Uh, yes. Captain Nice, he was <laughs> yeah. great. Buck Henry. Look, it's the man who flies Two for the road. like an eagle. Look, it's the man who hates all that's illegal. Who is this man with arms built just like hammers? It's just some nerd who flies around in pajamas. That's no nuts, son. That's Captain Nice. <laughs> How the hell did you just do that, Gilbert? I'm now more impressed than ever with your career. That's incredible. That's really very impressive, young man. He sang it for Buck Henry, who was also who was also impressed. I just saw Buck the other night too. Buck's a dear friend. Another genius. So great. What a comic. Ed, you have any movie. memories of being in Buddy Buddy with with uh, Billy Wilder's last movie? I do. Um, you know, I can't believe that I got to work with a great Billy Wilder. You know, I just played a cop. I had like a line or two. Very simple scene. We shot it in Riverside, California. No, it's Santa Ana now that I think about it. Uh, it doesn't matter. Please tell me the difference between Riverside and Santa Ana. <laughs> Not that I can remember. In either city, you'd say. <laughs> Are you sure we're there? But <laughs> the Inland Empire. But it was uh, so much fun to be on that set. I didn't have any scenes with Walter Matthau or Jack Lemon, but I'd met them both and just was, loved them both. I.L. Diamond, I.A.L. Diamond was on the set yeah. as well. Is he Diamond? Director's chair. And uh, advising Billy about this line or that, you know, kind of working things out. And it was uh, just, you know, pinch me kind of moment. It was fairly early in my career. It was 1980, I believe. And uh, that we shot it. I can't remember when it came out. Maybe 81. 81, yeah. And yeah, and uh, working on a set with Billy Wilder and to be there in the same movie. And Paula Prentice, who I see all the time, was in it as well. Yes. We yeah, had, Paula was in we it. We had Richard Benjamin here. Yeah. Richard's a dear friend of mine. I see Paul and Richard often. And uh, Dana Elkar was in it. I oh, think. sure. Dana Elkar. You know him, Gilbert. Yeah. From, uh, he was the, the on MacGyver. Oh, okay. Dana Elkar. He did a million things. Million and, things. Yeah. And this surprised me. You used to be in a comedy team with Michael Richards. This is correct. We went to college together, and everybody at Valley College in the San Fernando Valley was trying to do and failing to do a Michael Richards impression. He was just so incredibly funny, and somehow he took to me, and we had a comedy act. We went to the troubadour and did a monday night hoot night thing and then doug mess doug weston wanted to manage us and we started to have some momentum we went to the ice house and played the ice house we went um to the comedy store the week they opened it was still sammy shore that was running at that point it was not uh yet mitzi mitzi's property well it was community property it was always her property and his but uh he was running it. Sammy was, and Rudy DeLuca was there. The very funny Rudy DeLuca was there too. Was part of that. And we went on stage, me and Michael, in uh, Greek male dancers' outfits with little like balls hanging from these skirts. Little like <laughs> I don't know where we got those. Co we got the. I do remember now where we got the costumes from. The costume department of Valley College. We borrowed them. Went on stage with roller skates and these Greek dancers' outfits. We had no routine at this point. We just get up there and wing it. I mean the balls. But Michael was so funny, 
There was a huge problem with the, with the act, huge problem. The problem was Michael was so goddamn funny, I'd regularly have to turn up stage and kind of rock and not let the audience see and come back. What do you mean by that, sir? I challenge you. I shall not abide by this, you know, and come back and try to participate in the scene, whatever Michael was coming up with. But he was so brilliant back then. It was every bit as brilliant as Kramer and, you know, Marble Hud Manor and all the other many things that he'd done Fridays. He was brilliant back in the 60s, 1968, when I met him and is still brilliant to this day. What did you guys call yourselves? Vladimir and Estragon. Vladimir and <laughs> College students. So of course. Us. Yeah, of course. And you said your father really didn't uh, push you in to show business or open any doors for you. And it was, you're correct. That's right, Gilbert. And it's one of the best gifts he gave me to not help me because I had the entirely wrong attitude growing up. I literally didn't understand why he wouldn't just get me an episode at the minimum or even better yet, a series. You know, get me a gun smoke. <laughs> yeah. Get, get me, me a Perry Mason, a regular job. Why don't, Lassie, I would be very good as Lassie. Johnny Provost, wonderful kid, but I think it should be me. And I had no training. Imagine the son of a plumber going, that looks easy what you do. You kind of fit the pipes together, right? I'm ready. I'll ride in the truck today and do, you know, you guys stay in the truck. I'll just do it. I'll do some plumbing. Had no idea. And I went out and interviewed starting at age 10, got nothing ever because I didn't know what I was doing. Then finally took some classes, what a concept, studied a bit and got a job like right away on a My Three Sons. And but I still was resentful because I had that wake me when I'm famous attitude that some people have. You know, I didn't want to put in the work. And uh, and I so I wasn't getting enough work as an actor, so I became a camera assistant because I just wanted to make money, obviously, and I wanted to work in the business. So I was an assistant for a while. And then Jim Brooks from Room 222 at that point, he was a head writer, and Gene Reynolds gave me a job on Room 222. I did one, then I did another and another, and that built a little momentum, and I started to work as an actor back around 1970. And sadly, didn't really start to work until my dad passed away. He didn't get to see me work much as an actor. That's too bad. I've heard you say, it's just kind of sweet, Ed. I've heard you say he helped you in ways that you didn't realize. Exactly. He would have me run lines with him, which was a favor to him. I was helping him too. I'm running mm -hmm. lines. But during the course of that, it, you know, this one, look at the stage direction, Eddie. This guy, he's very still and he says, you know, uh, scared. You know, just, you, just it'll help me if you played a little more scared, you know. And he was giving me an acting lesson without calling it that. And it was so wonderful uh, uh, that he did that. I'm just, I, I love my old man and I miss him still. I love going through these old credits. Adam 12, Room 222, The Immortal with Christopher George. Oh, yeah. One, one of those fugitive knockoffs. Wow. FB, That's right. That's the right. FBI, Maud, Nanny and the Professor, Mannix, Ironside. Charlie's Angels. On roller skates. I skated my way through that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, explain that plot to me. Roller disco was popular. This is 1979, okay? <laughs> it was a big time for roller disco. So I'm at a roller disco place. I was at Flippers or I was at that place we used to skate with Helena. This woman, Helena, had a club called Helena's in the 80s, an actress, Helena Calignotes. And she had this, she and I actually together had this Monday night skating thing at the Sherman Square roller rink. And I think they might have even come there, these producers of Charlie's Angels, to find you know, people who skated. And she heard, they heard there was actors there, and I skated pretty good in that, at that point. I still skate a little bit, but I skated okay. They went, and they had seen me in a few things. They said, 
you want to, would you be interested in doing a Charlie's Angels? I went, absolutely. So I went <laughs> and skated on Charlie's Angels. It was, if you've seen the episode, you got to see a few scenes of it. Just look at the clips at some point. It's really beyond ridiculous. You're all, one of the flimsiest plots I've ever seen. <laughs> just like, we got to write an episode about roller skating. So we'll have a girl get kidnapped at the roller rink. They're in a competition. She and her boyfriend, played by me. And she'll be kidnapped, and what's that about? Just, I mean, people were clearly very high writing these scripts. <laughs> I, there's, there's so much fun stuff here, Ed, at this particular point of your career. Do you, you remember being an evil Roy Slade? Uh, uh, Vividly. Uh, Gary I, Marshall, Jerry Belson script? Correct. It was such a funny script by Gary and Jerry. Uh, such funny people. Oh, everyone's My in God. it. Everybody's in it. Yeah. Mickey Rooney. My scenes were with Mickey Rooney scenes. I had one scene. It was with Mickey Rooney. But the script was hysterical. I thought, this is going to be a winner. This is the funniest thing I've ever read in my life. It was a pilot only and never saw the light of day again. They just didn't get it. They went, what? Yeah. What is this? It's too hip Jerry, for the room. Jerry Bells is one of the funniest guys I've ever met. When the wonderful writer and his dear friend Harvey Miller died, Harvey Miller passed away years and years ago now, 20 years ago or more. And Jerry was still very much alive himself then. And he kicked in with, I think, Jim Brooks, let's say, and Gary Marshall. The three of them picked up the tab for the memorial, you know, for the food and what have you in the hall or whatever they did. There was some food and what have you. And they all, they split it three ways. And on the memo line of Jerry's check, he wrote business death. (laughs) (laughs) I love Jerry Belson's movie, The End, the Burt Reynolds picture. Oh, right. Yeah. Everything Jerry did was great. Like Gary, another funny guy, too. Very, very funny. And Jerry Paris, guy. who directed Evil Roy Slade. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you knew Don Rickles. I was so proud to know Don Rickles. I, I got to think how I met him now. I met him at some function. It doesn't matter what now that I think about it. But he had worked with my dad, and he was so kind about my dad. And I love hearing about my dad, as I still do. And he just decided he liked me because he just tore me apart right away. I can't remember what he said. You know, you're probably not going to win an Oscar, Ed. <laughs> There's, no probably not. There's no probably about it, you know. <laughs> you're not going to the podium, okay? Do you understand? <laughs> you don't have it in you. You're lucky your dad fed you, for Christ's sake. Look at yourself. He just came out. <laughs> and it's like, what... I mean, it's a great moment when Rickles comes after you. I mean, there's no higher praise. What an honor. cares enough to... to attack you so funny so great i saw him as recently as um when did he pass is it a year ago now uh maybe a little less I, a little less i yeah. saw him uh, maybe a year and a half ago there's a thing for a wonderful artist ed ruche and he was friendly with ed as i am and he went there and we got we talked at length on that night i yeah. loved him barbara yeah. is a wonderful lady his dear widow barbara is fantastic we send her a lot of love there's these these credits from this period, and I've heard you be interviewed about some of these things. I mean, Cockfighter. Is that, that where you befriended uh, Harry Dean? Were you in Harry Dean's game? bondage movie. Oh, right. no, that's another movie. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, that was with Harry Dean Stanton. Actually, we now that I think about it, that was the first time Harry and I worked together. We didn't work together much. Oh, you were friends before. Really think about it. Huh? You were friends before that movie. We were friends from yeah. meeting at the Troubadour and then Tana's. I see. You know, you would go back and forth between the Troubadour and Tana's in the early 70s to see where the attractive young ladies were and where the, you know, the fun was. And there was a lot of fun there, you know, it was 
the Eagles were hanging out there at the Troubadour at that, and not just hanging out, being on stage there and great people. Irving Azoff, the manager was sure. there too. And David Geffen was there and Joni Mitchell would be there at the Troubadour and Bette Midler played there and Elton John played there and they'd go back and forth. The people go to Taunus and the Troubadour and I'd seen Harry Dean in different, you know, wonderful movies that he did starting, uh, with, um, Paul Newman. Uh, what's the movie? Uh, cool hand, cool Luke. hand Luke. Yeah. And Cisco Pike, I think had come out already by then. And so I befriended Harry and he started inviting me by his place after last, last call to watch something called the Z channel. There was a, you'd have this big box, a big plastic oh, yeah. tuner box. It was like the, before there was Showtime and HBO and all that, there was something called the Z channel. It was an early form of cable in LA. And so Harry had that. We watched these movies on the Z channel after we had gotten drunk at Tana's. And I used to get really drunk in those days. So I'd pass out on his couch, wake up the next morning and walk back to my place. And, uh, and we finally got a movie together called Cockfighter. So we go to, to Georgia. We were in Macon, Georgia, I think. And right away, I walked into the lobby of the hotel, and Harry was there. I said, thank God there's another homosexual on this movie. I feel comfortable now. <laughs> and Harry laughed his ass off. And from that moment on, we were really great friends. But we're there like, we're there like four or five days. And I finally said to Harry, I said, Harry, we get to call up Tana's because it's been like, at the, the Troubadour, nobody would miss you. But at Tana's, we were there every single night at the bar. And there's a guy, Guido, from Italy, and this Italian maitre d' Guido, I said, we better call Guido or Michael at the bar, the Yugoslav bartender. We better call them and tell them where we are. They may be worried about us, you know, gone for five days. It's unheard of for us not to be there for five days. So I call up and Guido answers. Good evening, Thomas. I said, Guido, it's Ed Begley. I'm here with Harry Dean. We're out of town. Oh, thank God. We're going to call the police. We were going to call the police tonight. I swear to God, we're going to call the police. So why were you going to call the police? We thought you'd fall asleep watching the Z Channel with the gas on by accident. We thought you were dead. I mean, they literally <laughs> thought we had died. There was no other possible explanation for not being there for five days. The two of us, not just one or the other. Occasionally, he'd get a job or I'd get a job, but the two of us gone together. They thought we had died together on the couch. <laughs> As long as we're talking about the partying days, and we put it in the intro, that you, the, were you, who were you trying to outdrink when when Belushi yanked you out of the bar? Two times I tried to outdrink a real champion. One time I tried to, tried to outdrink the brilliant musician uh, and songwriter Harry Nilsson. Oh that boy, and so well either. <laughs> but then I tried to outdrink uh, Jack Nicholson's kind of father figure, uh, Shorty George Smith, this wonderful guy that was married to what what Jack thought was his aunt was in fact his uh right no what in fact was his aunt he thought it was his sister Lorraine uh Shorty was married to Lorraine and so uh Shorty came to work he had a part in the movie and he would drink he was uh he worked on, on the railroad he was a brakeman or something on the railroad and he would still you know, stay well oiled under any conditions and certainly <laughs> waiting around to act in a bar in Durango, Mexico. He just, he would drink a lot of vodka. So I, I challenged him to a drinking contest. And at some point uh, I, you know, woke up, you know, with, with Shorty George gone and, you know, a pool of, you know, bodily fluids, you know, on, on the, the seat next to me. I was just like a wreck. It didn't work well. And then finally, uh, Judy Belushi and John grabbed me by the collar one day when I was trying to out drink 
Shorty again and said, you've got to see some of the town. You're going to kill yourself. I was too far gone for John Belushi is the point. Wow. Too much parting for John. So I know I was in quite a state. Oh, my God. John Belushi thought you were like something to worry about. (laughs) Something to worry about. I'm concerned about Ed. He's too wild. Wow. One night we drove this car into a ditch. We were driving to or from Jack's house in some rented car, a car we had borrowed from the Teamsters. And I was driving, I'm pretty sure. And uh, we went down. It was a muddy road or what have you. Went off the road and into a ditch and couldn't get it out. Teamsters had to tow us out. We got a lot of shit for that, rightly so. Those those were the days. You you spent some time with Nielsen, Harry Nielsen? He was a very good friend. Uh, Harry was a great friend of mine, and I was proud to know him. And uh, a brilliant, brilliant singer-songwriter. One time in New York, though, we had been drinking all day. And then he said, do you want to get together for dinner? I said, sure. He said, meet me back here in an hour. I'm going to go freshen up. We're going to go have dinner with some friends that live in Manhattan. I said, okay. Meet him back there. We get in a cab. We go to the Dakota. We start to go up the elevator. I started to think, and I went, no, it it can't be. Going up to this floor of the Dakota, open the door. Hello, how are you? Here's Yoko. I'm John. What's your name, lad? Hi, it's Ed Begley. Oh, my God, Yoko. It's the bloke from Matty Hartman, Matty Hartman. Look at <laughs> And they were all like, That's John great. Lennon is asking me like fan questions about Louise Lasser and Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. I'm trying to keep my face from cracking. So, wow. That's the kind of pal that Harry Nilsson was. He introduced me to Ringo and to John and so many people. He was a great friend and what a talent. What more, a huge, more, pe- huge talent. more people should know about his music and about his, his wonderful singing voice. Whenever the Beatles were asked, who's your favorite artist? They all said Harry Nilsson. <laughs> Harry Nilsson, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they all loved him personally because he was one of those guys, some people when they get drunk, they get nasty, they get whatever they get. The drunker he got, the nicer he got. He was the sweetest guy that ever lived. And I remember Harry Nielsen had that anime, that cartoon, the, the point, point, the point, yeah, that I think both Ringo uh, did a narration on one of them, and then I think Dustin Hoffman. That sounds right. That sound both of those sound right, actually. Tell Here's us, talent. tell us this, Ed. Uh, about one of your heroes plays your father on St. Elsewhere. Oh, you talk about Steve Allen? Steve Allen. Yeah. Tell us about tell us about Steve. And and by the way, looking at those St. Elsewhere episodes, somebody loved the old Steve Allen show because Louis Nye turns up and Tom Poston. Everybody. And uh, well, just did they have they had I, nearly I, everybody, I think I Bill Dana had turns Tom up. Tom Poston, they had Bill Dana. Yeah. I think they had every single person. I don't think they had Don Knotts. Don Knotts, they kept trying to get, and he was busy okay. with other shows, right. and he couldn't do it. But every single other person, and I, like the writers and producers, like Mark Taker, Bruce Paltrow, all of them, John Macius, Tom Fontana, were all huge Steve Allen fans. I had this treasure my dad had gotten for me. He had a signed picture of Steve Allen. Then one day they announced to me that my father is going to be in an episode. They're going to have a character of my father actually being the episode. It was going to be Steve Allen and Jane Meadows were going to be my parents. I couldn't believe it. It was a huge moment. They were so nice to me. I became friends with them. I remained friends with them. We talk on the phone a lot and uh, what a treat to know them. Whoever was, I don't know if it was Fontana or who was, but you know, Shelly Berman turns up, Chuck McCann turns up, Dick Sean. These guys were fans of, of, of older comedians. 
They were big time. They had very good taste. And one thing that I, I always think about, because you were talking about the drinking going on, and that's that Hollywood years ago and show business in general, it was like there was no such a thing as alcoholism. Everybody was just drunk, seemed like. It would be a regular occurrence where you would say the prop guy, you know, listen, in this uh, scene coming up, we're at the bar. Make sure you put some real whiskey in. I need to just calm down. Okay. And the director, not the director, the producer, nobody. Or even forget about just alcohol. Alcohol was ubiquitous. People would regularly drink in a scene or drink. Had nothing. There wasn't a bar scene at all. They'd just be nipping, you know, before the take. And people would regularly do coke on the set. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, the way it started to be in the 80s. If you're wired, you're fired. You know, just say no to drugs. That started in the 80s. Before that, it was like, if you don't do blow with the director, what's the matter? Are you a narc? We got a narc here on the set. What's wrong with you? You don't want to do blow with the director? People would worry about you if you wouldn't do drugs with somebody. You never offered drugs on a, on a movie set, Gilbert? In uh, all your travels? No, and it's like... Interesting. I heard, like, I mean, I was on... Hollywood Squares for a while. But I remember they said with the original Hollywood Squares, like so many of those game shows, they would have someone with a cart wheeling around like alcoholic beverages. Yes. They wanted you relaxed. Just relax. Let me get somebody have, get somebody to get you a drink. That's the way it was back in the old days, too, with, you know, like Mickey Rooney and uh, and Judy Garland, you know, you need some pep pills. Get them some pep pills. They got oh, a scene yeah. to do. You need to relax. Go get some sleep. Here's some sleeping pills. They were they both got addicted to medications because they would the studio would give them medications to get through another day. They do whatever it took to get the shot to get the day to make their schedule. And they were little kids. They were kids at the time. That they were giving speed to and oh, yeah. sleeping pills. Oh yeah, it was very common. I remember working with Forrest Tucker on this uh, pilot. We did a pilot together. <laughs> Forrest Tucker had a cane. He, I got to have my cane in the scene, but there's not, we don't really need the character. Shouldn't, I need to have my cane. Okay. So the character's got a cane, like a walking stick, not really a cane, a walking stick. And he had it with him at all the time. Then I realized why it had a cap on the top. And then the walking stick, he had these vials so he could poke a drink just before the take or in the middle of the take, if he was off camera for a second, if he walked camera off camera for a moment, he would uh, take a poke from the, uh, you know, from this cane that this walking stick that he had, it was a walking stick with a hollow middle. Wow. And it had like a, a generous amount, like two flasks worth of liquor in the walking stick. <laughs> and he was actually great the whole time he was drinking, never flubbed a line, nothing ever went wrong. And then for the last half of the shooting, he had to go do this, he claimed this was a reason. I don't know if it was true. He said, I've got to do an Iditarod race in Alaska. You're kidding. You're going to do an Iditarod. Yeah, and you can't be drunk for that. you got to be sober to do something like that with the dogs and the ice and the snow. So uh, he got sober for the last few days of the shoot, and he was a wreck, as you can imagine. Wow. Because he had been drunk for the past 30 years, and now he's got three days of not drinking. Poor Forrest was not in good shape. Old Hollywood. Gilbert, you're very well behaved. Ed brings up Forrest uh, Tucker yes, and a walking yeah, stick. And you, yeah, yes. <laughs> and you didn't say anything. Okay, Forrest Tucker <laughs> is also I'm famous sure Ed knows. among the classic, well, Milton Berle's The King. 
Oh, I, th- I know where you're headed with this. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I think uh, I think it has to do uh, with being well endowed, correct? Yes. <laughs> well, Tucker was legendary. Yeah, and, he was, apparently. And they said one time on the golf course, he <laughs> he got down on his knees and hit the golf ball with a stick. <laughs> it was a gimme putt, right? <laughs> I hadn't heard that. <laughs> I hadn't heard that. Wow. I kind of hope that's true. <laughs> Richard Kine told us that story. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna assume it's true just because we want to. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. What about this, Ed? What about this? Is this is an odd? An, forgive me for bringing this up. Early in your career, in nineteen seventy-eight, you have any recollections of making a movie called Record City? Vividly, the cast, because the great cast. Tell me the the cast. I remember it pretty well myself. Well, you tell me, Frank. What you got. For starters, you got Frank Gorshin playing a rabbi. Right. You could end there. Oh my! <laughs> exactly. Jack God. Jack Carter, Kinky Friedman, Harold Sakata, who was Odd Job. Oh yes, in Goldfinger, Gallagher. One of your favorites, Sorel Book. Oh yes, Ruth Buzzy. Yes, Sorel Book. Dean oh, Martin's God. uncle Leonard Barr, and last but not least, our friend Larry Storch. Oh, Larry geez. Storch! What a cast! We shot it in Eagle Rock, California, and I found a bar nearby since I was still drinking at that time. So <laughs> I was able to make, uh, you know, make it through the day there because of a bar nearby at Eagle Rock. But we shot it at a. Uh, an abandoned record store, maybe uh, out of, I can't remember what happened. What It was some storefront there on Colorado Boulevard. And we shot there for a while and it was shot on videotape and not like three inch, you know, good quality video sh- tape like they shot at, the, at that time. In the old days they would shoot, you know, the Hollywood squares or what have you on, on big three inch tape. It was shot on like three quarter inch tape. So the quality of it was, not good. This is a motion picture they're going to release in the theaters. It was not <laughs> And well, they actually <laughs> premiered it in some theaters, and people were, like, asking for the money back, going, why? I can watch TV at home. <laughs> back then, TV was it wasn't HD, obviously. It had 525 lines. You know, it just looked like some bad old footage, and it was footage that was shot, like, a few months before, and it looked like hell. So it didn't. It came and went very quickly. But what a cast! Any memory of any of those characters of Jack Carter or Gorshin or Leonard Barr? I remember being on the set with them. I remember, you know, being well oiled, and, uh, <laughs> trying to get through my lines and not get fired. Yeah. I remember one day I was, I had forgotten that it was videotape and that there was a booth and people were watching in the booth. I was in front of the cameras or getting the final setup and tweaking a light or the focus or something. I started going, talking some fake Swedish voice. I went, Hunde, Hunde, Levende, Hunde, and the record city piece of fuming dog shit. The Hunde, Hunde, Jim Aubrey, total moron. And get me the fuck out of here. You know, and doing a mixture of, you know, fake Swedish. And, and then finally, I feel behind me some hands move a little bit to the left, Ed. And somebody was angrily moving me around. It was Jim Aubrey, the guy who was producing and directing it who had, was watching in the booth. I forgot that there was a booth because oh. it was electronic. <laughs> I went, I'm clear to make some dip- disparaging remarks in front of the crew because everybody else you know, felt that way. He was a guy that was an executive at CBS and he uh, had decided he was going to make a movie and this was a 
less than stellar production to say the least. And everybody thought it was going to be uh, a complete joke. And I guess it was, but I didn't know that he was watching from a remote. That's how well oiled I was. I forgot what format. That's I was hilarious. Well, that yeah. Jim Aubrey, I think was the legendary guy who was, who was in bed with a mob. The, oh. the, do you know that story? I didn't know that part. I know he was a guy that when it was changing from the golden age of television yeah. you know, to something else, he was a guy that approved all those shows like Green Acres right. and Beverly Hillbillies. The he was the head Bailey's of, of Balboa. Bailey's of Balboa with, with Paul, Paul Ford. Ford. That's right. Oh, my God. Who remembers that show? Yeah, well, I'm more than a little impressed, Frank. Well, he was... <laughs> it's the kind of stuff we talk about on this show, so don't be. Wow. But a Cliff Nesteroff came and told us a story about Jim Aubrey, which I will go back and double-check. And I'll send you to, to yet. It's interesting, but I think it's a mob story. Might you, be. You look back on your career... So, I mean, obviously, the people, the giants you've worked with, we read on the list, but the, the, that you've, you got to work with these fun oddballs, these oddball characters... Um, like you, you did, uh, this is a question that we actually got from one of our, uh, from one of our listeners, big daddy. He says, uh, this is one of the things I wanted to ask Ed. He worked on those Dexter Riley Disney movies with Kurt Russell, but he got to work with iconic character actors like Joe Flynn, Pat Harrington, Jim Backus and Fritz Feld. Wow. All true. What great actors. And I was like, you guys are a huge fan of each and every one of them. So, so to work yeah, with them yeah. and get to know Joe Flynn. Joe Flynn was fantastic, of course. McHale's Navy and a million other things. He was just great. To be on the set with him was extraordinary. I, I just loved him. And I still see Kurt on occasion. I know Kurt and Goldie a bit, so I get to see them. You were uh, in all of those. You were in the computer wore tennis shoes. and Yep. Nanny, uh, and the, Nanny and the, oh, wait, no, it was called uh, Charlie and the Angel. Charlie and the Angel with Fred McMurray. And, yep. And yep. you, you uh, here's another story. That's popped up maybe once or twice on the podcast. You worked with Cesar Romero. Oh, he's in the computer wore tennis shoes. He's in the computer wore tennis shoes. That's correct. Right. Now, do you know anything about Cesar Romero? He was a gay gentleman, I believe. Yes. As was Joe Flynn. And and according to legend, Cesar Romero. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to gonna study Ed's face as you tell him this. <laughs> yep. Would gather up a bunch of boy toys. And and they surround him, and he. Some people claim he'd be standing ankle deep in warm water when he did this. I don't know, but he would be uh, at least from the waist down naked. He'd pull down his pants and underwear, and and the boys in the in the crowd would throw orange wedges. At his ass. And this is <laughs> this is what uh, Cesar Romero uh, was turned on by. It sounds too far out. Sounds like way too much work for Cesar. <laughs> or as my dad called him, Butch Romero. Butch. You worked with Butch Romero, huh? Yep. Butch. Who's Cesar Romero? No, yeah, Butch Romero. You're working with him. Good luck. <laughs> I'll have you know it. One time, Go ahead. I lived near uh, Vineland and Ventura at that time. And there was a place there called the Valley House. It was a gay bar. They also had laundry machines there. And I lived nearby, and I didn't have laundry machines, so I would regularly do my laundry there. One day I went, I'm going to go into a gay bar. I've never been in a gay bar, so I'm going to go in and get a, a beer. And I got a beer, and everybody was very nice to me. It wasn't, nobody bothered me, what have you. I was uh, about 21 years old at that time. 
finished up my laundry, went home. The next day I went to work and Joe Flynn was in the scene. So, Ed, hey, yo, how you doing, Joe? I saw you yesterday at the Valley House. <laughs> at the Valley House, huh? What are you doing there? I'm doing, a, yeah, sure, you're doing laundry, yeah. They got some Speed Queen machines there, and uh, I understand now what you were doing. You're doing a spin cycle, huh? No, no, I was actually doing laundry. Sure you were. With a beer in your hand. No, no, I, I was waiting for the spin cycle to finish, and I got a beer. I was trying to talk my way through with... <laughs> Explain my whereabouts to Joe is very now. Funny. There, there's a pro, a man who can take your Cesar Romero story, pivot on a dime, and turn it into a, a, a just as good Joe Flynn story. Oh, I, but I don't mean to not finish up with Cesar Romero. Uh, it just sounds too far out. It's like the thing with uh, the gerbils and Richard Gere. It's just, right. It doesn't sound right. Right, it just sounds made up. Well, I, we've had we've had several people. You're among them who work with Cesar Romero. We had Frankie Avalon here. We had Adam West, Julie Newmar. None of them could. None of them would confirm the Caesar Romero story, or or had even heard of it. The only yeah, argument I've gotten on on the Caesar Romero from other people was that some people believe it wasn't orange wedges; it was tangerine wedges. That's as far afield as he'll go. But just keep in mind, you know, there's crazy things that happen that might be true, but also there are people out there, and that's what I think happened with the Richard Gere fabrication. I believe it to be untrue myself. I have no verification that it's true or untrue, but I believe it to be untrue. It's like taggers. You get to tag your specific thing. Whoever started the, I believe, fictional account about Richard Gere, they know that they did, and they went, this is a story that's worldwide. I did that. I started that. It's like yeah. a graffiti artist. Yeah. And I think that might be true with the... With the Oranges and Seas Romero, true too, but I I have no way to confirm it tonight. <laughs> Which you well, may be the one I, that started it, I, <laughs> Gilbert. <laughs> I I swear to everyone out there, it is true. Okay, and and I can't I'll, deny it. So, and you know the I mean, with old rumors, and certainly the Richard Gere one is like that. Everybody has a. Best friend or a cousin yes, who works in the emergency yeah. ward. Oh, yeah. But none of them have names. Nobody's like, my name is such and such, and I can now come. Nobody even with a muffled, you know, distorted camera and backlit. I worked. I was actually in the hospital there. I was the one that had a help tour. There's nobody that's come forth on some video anywhere <laughs> in the world that, that but, actually was but there. But they all know someone personal. They know somebody. who <laughs> Exactly. The, it's always the a couple. ambulance driver, the <laughs> exactly. doctor, the cop, and but but I knew the uh, the fruit vendor. Get out of here! <laughs> <laughs> the greengrocer, yes, who lived across the street from Cesar Romero, from Butch. I knew the president of Tropicana. <laughs> He'll go on like this for hours, Ed, if you don't stop him. Here's it might a, have been sun-kissed, though. <laughs> Here's one of your... Sun don't kissed. <laughs> Here's one of your favorite, uh, one of our favorite uh, Ed Begley credits that Gilbert and I were talking about before you, before you came over. Uh, Son of the Invisible Man from Amazon Women on the Moon. Oh, thank which you. Which you and Carl Gottlieb directing you. So funny. Well, I just watched it again last night. You're very kind, but that is a funny, funny segment and it's it holds up just me taking my clothes off always provokes hilarity so (laughs) 
Well, it's it's also and, so faithful looking to James Whale's Invisible I, Man. They went to great lengths. I yeah. I was that's the part that really got me in that it looks like one of those old movies. It looks exactly like it. Yeah, they did a good job. Carl and, Gottlieb and uh, who's the producer? Robert. What's oh, Robert Weiss. Very very good. Robert K. Yes. Weiss. Yeah. And and yeah. in it, you're the Invisible Man. Such a funny premise. And you're going, here, let me take my pants off. Yeah. And like, you ever in- see a shirt, make a phone call, <laughs> and I think I'm invisible because the chemicals that I think made me invisible have just made me crazy. <laughs> and so I think I'm invisible. I'm 100% visible. I just take off my clothing and, uh, and walk around like a total maniac. And, and you're there bare ass going... Look, my shirt is moving by itself. <laughs> Gary Goodrow's in there too, somewhere. Speaking he of the sure speaking is. of the committee, Gary Good, what a talent he yep, is. Yep, yep, yep. This is uh, he still with us. Is he, Gary he, still with we, us? he passed. I think he did. He passed a while ago. I loved Gary. Yeah, very funny. The committee, very funny. Carl Gottlieb. Speaking of Carl Gottlieb, who we also have to get on this show, was Carl the one who wrote Christmas Carol two? That you're in with Roddy McDowell and Paul Benedict and James Whitmore. You have a memory directed, of this? He directed that. I think he wrote it as well. Yes, yeah. that was George Burns' Steve comedy. Ma- yeah, uh, it was uh, Steve Martin's comedy hour. Right. And he and Steve might have written it together. Carl might have might have written it with the staff or alone. There you go. I don't remember that important detail, but Carl directed it for sure, and I believe he wrote it as well. What a talent he is. Huge talent. Iron Balls McGinty from The oh, Jerk. yes. That's Car- right. Carl Gottlieb. And, he- and wrote the screenplay for Jaws. Wrote Jaws. Novel, wrote the Jaws course, script. But he wrote the screenplay, and it was a fine screenplay. Yeah. And he pops up in Jaws. Yes, he does. Yeah. A very, very funny guy. Can we ask you quickly, Ed, uh, just you have your choice here because uh, there's so much. I have so many cards that we're not even going to get to this stuff. Uh, do you want to talk about your relationship with Chris Guest and those guys? And by the way, the scene in Mighty Wind where you're doing the, where you're the Swedish American who suddenly breaks into Yiddish. Thank you so much. That's <laughs> some of my favorite. Truly wonderful. Ever. I love those movies myself just as a viewer. I love being in them. I'm just lucky to know Chris Guest. I, I met his sister Alyssa years ago in the early 70s. And through Alyssa, I met Chris and we became good friends. And then he, uh, gave me an opportunity to, to direct something in his, he had a deal with Showtime or somebody and I never was able to, it was my first time directing and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I never finished it, but it didn't stop him from being supportive of me. So when he started to do these improv movies, I was not in, uh, well, I was in Spinal Tap, that one, right, the very course. small part playing the drummer. He thought of me for that. It was his idea and Rob's idea that I'd be in that. I was happy to be in that. Tell Ed you've never seen Spinal Tap. Go ahead. Tell him I dare you. I never saw Spinal Tap. Which he told McKean when we had him here. It's a pretty funny movie. It still holds up very well. It's a, you know, another case of playing it seriously. Mm -hmm. And that's why all the jokes land. They don't play it for laughs. They have some absurd things going on, but they play it very, very straight. And it works well. Um, so after Spinal Tap, he did a couple of movies, and I wasn't in any of those, but happy he was doing these great movies. And then he did Waiting for Guffman. I just couldn't believe how great that movie was. Wonderful. And the next movie that he did, he he had a meeting with me, and he said, um, I'd love for you to be in and play the hotel manager. So I just uh, was over the moon happy to be in it. 
and uh, wound up being in, geez, I think every movie that he's done since. I haven't missed one since uh, Best in Show, so I'm a lucky guy to be his friend. Tell, tell us about that scene, because I swear that Balaban is cracking up, that he's, that he's breaking character. When you're doing, well, he was shocked as I kind of was shocked because I wasn't planning on it. I'm not sure if I did it to get a laugh out of Chris or why I did it. There was no reason I should be talking Yiddish. I'm just, I'm a Swedish American guy, and I have some a scene in which I do a little fake and a little real Swedish. But this is a scene where it's uh, Bob Balaban, as you say, is in the scene, and I'm this guy who's a PBS kind of producer trying to ingratiate myself to this guy, and I figure. What might be funny is the way many Goyesha guys decide to ingratiate themselves to a Jewish gentleman. They start peppering, you know, the conversation with Yiddish. And I just kept throwing it out there one after another. One after just kept bing, bang, boom, boom, like a batting cage. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. And he's running around like a Vildachaya. And the Spilkas that I felt at that time, it's a, it's a Mahaya to sit here like that. You feel like Mishpuka. I just kept one after another. He's Swedish. And, uh, and, Bob was not expecting that. So he's just sitting there trying not to crack up or trying not to react in any way. But the look on his face it's is great. what makes it. What I do is fine, but what Bob Balaban does makes the scene work. It's great. And you, you've said that other directors would have said, stop, what the hell are you doing? But but guests yeah. just, just knew to Guess let you said, roll. You know, I just did it as kind of a surprise to me and everybody, to Bob for sure. And, uh, and then... Chris said, that's great. We're going to move in a little tighter. Let's do that again. So I did it for the rest of the coverage, and he uh, he liked it. I thought for sure he's going to want an alter- alternate version. He'd take off his headset and go, Ed, Ed, you're a Swedish-American character. Why why the hell are you spouting Yiddish? Stop it. Get back to the scene. Roll. Those Christopher Guest movies, it's like they're comedies, but it seems like they're so close to being tragedies. Yes. Two. Yes. The characters yes. are helpless. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. That's why it's one of the keys to them. I agree. Yeah. He gets great actors: Jane Lynch and Parker Posey. These and Michael Higgins. Oh, all of them. You know, Fred Willard, Michael McKean, McKean, Catherine O'Hara, Don Lake, Catherine O'Hara, Eugene Levy. He and Eugene used to do all the heavy lifting with Best in Show and with uh, Waiting for Guffman in those movies, and. Uh, they would write these things together and for your consideration. And now it's Jim Pittick and Chris, but they do all the work. And then we all come in, me and Jane Lynch and Parker Posey and everybody comes in and we just get to have a party because they've done all the work writing the outline. And then we just come in and decide we're going to be, you know, speaking Yiddish or whatever we think is going to be funny or Chris will like. And uh, but they do all the work. It's really a treat. Speaking of, uh, this is just one more question, too, from one of our our, our listeners, and I want to get this in. You, you're, uh, this is from Don Motley. He said, uh, Ed, your Dutch accent in Shelley Duvall's fairy tale theater, where you played Rip Van Winkle's neighbor, was excellent. How did you learn that? What a kind thing to say. Wow, I totally forgot I even did that. I didn't know that many people had seen that. I knew a guy that was from Holland, so I just kind of tried to do, do it the way he spoke and... Uh, and that's very kind of him. Wow. Tell him thanks. See, people are paying attention to this. Sure are. This is a massive body of work. I'm never going to get to half these questions on the cards. I'm never going to get to meet the Apple Gates or you know, you, Gil, Michael you wanna... Lehman. I work with him still. I just work with Michael Lehman, a bunch of Blunt Talk episodes. Work with him many times. Uh, this show, Betas, great director, great yeah. writer. Michael. Love Heathers. Yeah, Heathers. 
Gil, you want to ask anything about Transylvania Six Five Thousand? Since you're a uh, you're a monster oh, movie yeah. guy, plus John Biner, who was here on our show, I love John. Is turns up in there, and your pal Norman Fell. Oh my God! Playing my dad. It's like an Abbott and Costello movie. It is really you and Goldblum. Well, it's classic Rudy DeLuca, you know, stuff. Rudy DeLuca is a very funny guy, and he wrote this wonderfully slapstick movie, and he. They wanted Jeff Goldblum and me to be in it. And uh, so I, do I dove in first. I wasn't being offered the lead in any movies at that point. So I signed up and agreed to do it and signed a contract. And I called up Jeff. I said, Jeff, are you going to do this? I'm going to do it. Do you want to do it? Are you going to do it? Yeah, I did it. I just signed the contract. They want you to do it too. Come on in, buddy. So we did it. And then pretty soon Jeffrey Jones is doing it and Carol Kane's doing it and Joe Bologna's doing it and Great John Bynes is doing it. Oh, wow. Michael Richards is in it. Gina Davis. What a cast. I wish you and, and uh, Goldblum would make more movies together. You guys were a great guy. You guys were a great duo. What a great friend. He's been so good to me. Had me on his TV series when he had that series when he was a reporter. Um, he regularly, you know, thinks of me for things. He's, he's a dear friend. I just ha got honored by the L.A. City Council. They had an Ed Begley Jr. Day at City Hall in the city of Los Angeles. They declared it Ed Begley Day in and he came down there. My dear friend Jeff came down for that. Bobby Kennedy came down. I love those guys. And tell us about your podcast, too. That came and went. It was fun to do. Is, is it done? But I, it's done. We did it for a while, and I enjoyed it. It was a wonderful thing to do with my wife. And uh, it was her idea. She wanted to do a podcast to get more of this environmental message and design stuff and health and wellness stuff out there. It was her baby, and I was happy to do it with her. But... Um, we did it for about a year. I think it was about a year. And after a year, I just, I just didn't have the time. You know, guys, you guys know how much time it takes to set this up and, you know, and to do all the work to make it happen. It's a was, lot of work. And the people who helped us with it were great. They were doing all the heavy lifting themselves, but I just felt bad because they're, you know, it it was just time consuming. It was good. It was eclectic. A little, it was a, fun. a little I bit of everything. It. Yeah. Here's the last thing I want to do. Gil, is there anything you want to ask Ed before I, I do these? It was funny because you mentioned him before. Who? And in my documentary, I mentioned Fritz him. Feld. Fritz Feld. Be I can't do it. Yes. Can you do it? <laughs> yeah, see, I, just I can't either. <laughs> he would always be like the maitre d', and yep. he'd go, ah, you're table is ready. And he'd smack his mouth and make a loud a huge, perfect sound. popping sound, which I'm did not he, capable of. I just made he, a little bit of sound, but it's hard to do, as it turns out. Did he ever play anything other than a maitre d'? Did you ever see him in another role? I don't know. He was always <laughs> Maybe like, a bellman. Maybe a bellman, right? Yes. Or a hotel manager. Yeah, yeah. and it would always be, oh, right this way, sir. And he'd pop his mouth. Yeah. This is one last fun thing, if you'll indulge us, Ed, because you are a trivia expert. You you were you were a trivial pursuit guy in the day. Do you still play? I used to be good at it. My brains are not functioning the way they used to, but I'll give it a go. Okay, here these are these are easy. Gilbert can even help you out. These are just three quick ones. Who made the very first screen appearance, small screen or big screen, as James Bond? The first James Bond was um the first James Bond, oh come on. Shaken, not stood. Nope. This was on television. On television? Yeah. Okay. 
I thought Sean Connery was the first, but obviously I'm wrong on TV. I don't know that. It was well, Barry Nelson. It? Yes. Barry it Nelson. Was, it was Casino Royale. Correct. Done for television. Oh, my God. Casino Royale. And I saw that movie. How could I forget that? That's right. Casino Royale. I forgot that. Barry Nelson. Okay, here's another one. This is President's Day, or today is at least Lincoln's birthday. Five actors who played Abe Lincoln. Okay, Daniel Day-Lewis. Good. <laughs> Raymond Massey. Good. Um, Raymond Massey, Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, oh, man, I'm oh. running out of steam quick. Hen Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda, very good. David Selby. Yes. Walter David Houston. S Walter Houston. Walter Houston did that. I didn't know that. Uh, John Carradine. Yes. Sam John Waterston. Carradine. Sam Waterston. Sam's a wonderful actor. And the man sitting next to me played Abe Lincoln. I didn't know that. What did you play <laughs> Abe I played Abe Lincoln twice. The first time on The View, I came out as Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And then I did the big movie version <laughs> as Abraham Lincoln in uh, Seth MacFarlane's A Million Ways to Die in the West. That question was asked in your honor, Gilbert. Yes, I was Abraham Lincoln in that. <laughs> I got to see that. I love Seth MacFarlane. Oh, yeah. And I love you, Gilbert. Oh, thank you. Ed, this is a lot of fun. You, you have anything, anything you want to plug? You're going to do another season of Future Man for Hulu? Maybe. We don't know what's going to happen with any of the characters, so I can't talk about it. But okay. I, I hope we see uh, me back there again. And I'm also doing a show called Compliance with um, Courtney Vance and Mary Louise Parker. Okay. And I just did some Portlandia that just came out. And I did, uh, yeah, uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm was just on. What else? I've been crazy busy, which I like. I like busy. You were in, speaking of Larry David, you were in a, uh, you were in a rare Larry David authored SNL sketch. That's right. Uh, it was a very funny sketch. It was as funny as any Curb or any... Seinfeld scene. It was brilliantly funny in the Larry David style, making a big thing out of something very small. Something very small escalates and escalates and becomes huge. And it was very, very funny uh, a scene with an architect and this uh, design for a building in Manhattan. It was, it was great. One of the few sketches very, he got on the air. Yeah. That's <laughs> you guys missed each other because you hosted in 84 and Gilbert was a cast member in 80. Or 81. Right, that's right. Yeah. You didn't miss anything with my season. <laughs> oh, you're the best. I wish I had worked with you as well. Well, Gil? Well. I'm almost, uh, that's all I've got. Well. Unless, oh. you, unless you want to ask about Bob Crane. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. To think we were going to end the show without asking you, you worked with Bob Crane. And he's in the... I'm super dad. And he's in the Bob Crane, Paul Schrader movie. Right. Oh, Autofocus. yeah, you played Autofocus. the reporter. The reporter in Autofocus for Paul Schrader, who's given yeah. me more work than any other yeah, director. Yeah, you're in Blue Maybe Collar, Cat People. Now, yeah. did, did you know anything about what Crane was doing? Nothing. We worked with him in, I think it was 72, me and Bruno Kirby and Kurt Russell and a bunch of other people... Uh, Worked with him in 72, had no idea. Never heard any rumors, nothing. It was Bob Crane from Hogan's Heroes, and how great to work with him. We didn't have many scenes with him, to be honest. We had scenes away from him for the most part, but he was nice as can be. 
and uh, didn't hear any of that stuff till after he passed. I know his son a little bit, and I started to hear some stuff about the fact that uh, he might have been killed and hadn't just, you know, I mean, clearly he was killed. He didn't kill, he didn't hit himself over the head, but uh, there was all kinds of theories about who did it, and I, I didn't know any of that. I didn't know any of that dark stuff at all. It's just one of the interesting things about a long career is that you, you've been around so long, if you'll allow me to say, that you wind up appearing in a movie about a guy that you worked with 30 years earlier. I know. It's Crazy. a strange journey. Yeah. To still be doing it after half a century, I can't believe how lucky I am. This is 50 years now I've been working as an actor, and I just feel blessed as I did the first job I got. Well, we, wow. want, to, we want to thank, that's nice to hear, and we want to thank Mark Malkoff. You did a great show with him, and that's what, that's where we got the idea to, to grab you and, and get you here, and we're glad we did. Thank you. Thank you, guys. And and the most important moment for me is when you said to me off the air that while working on the movie with Cesar Romero, you walked into his dressing room, <laughs> and and there were a bunch of homosexuals Throwing orange wedges at Cesar Romero's ass. Wait a minute. I didn't say, oh, my God. Now it's. <laughs> or you say said putting it words was in my mouth, husband. but I know you're going to take that and run with it. <laughs> <laughs> we live in fear of being sued by the Romero estate, Ed. I understand. <laughs> well, the Romero estate, the Danny Thomas estate. Right. Forrest Tucker. <laughs> Ed, this was a real treat for us. Likewise, Frank. Thank like, you. Likewise, Gilbert. So good to see you both. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for oh, doing it. thank you. Our listeners will love this one. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and the very entertaining and talented, and, of course, most importantly, my co-star in <laughs> Back by Midnight. <laughs> That's right. One of my finest jobs. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Ed, very much. Thank you, both. A lot of fun. Likewise. I'm nobody's clown. I'm treating you cool. I'm putting you down. But baby, I don't intend to leave empty-handed. Give some money. Give some money. Robert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santa Padre, with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to Paul Rayburn, John Murray, John Fodiatis, and Nutmeg Creative. Especially Sam Giovanco and Daniel Farrell for their assistance. Pound notes, loose change, bad checks, anything Give me some money